got a table because I got a lot of books, um, and this is a big subject um, of text. What's called textual criticism. Before actually I open up into questions, I'd like to give you a try to keep this to under ten minutes. A sort of overview of where we get our Greek New Testaments from, um, how what the history on that is, because the New Testament's written in what's called Koine Greek. Um, not classical Greek. Koine Greek would be sort of vernacular, street, common Greek. Um, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and a little, a couple chapters of Aramaic. Um, now we've got the Old Testament from Jesus' references to from the blood of Abel to Zechariah who died before, before the horns of the altar. But as regarding the New Testament, the New Testament was written sequentially. Um, we've got one direct quotation of the New Testament in the New Testament. First Timothy 5.18 has Paul quoting Luke in First uh, Timothy 5.18, which is remarkable. The early, and the reason that's significant is he quotes Luke next to Deuteronomy with one introductory formula, the scripture says. And so at the time that Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus, Luke is recognized as scripture such that you can quote it next to Deuteronomy with one introductory. That's massive in regards to their confidence in it being scripture. Um, Second Peter references the writings of Paul as scripture, but it doesn't tell us which writings Peter has in mind. Just that Peter's aware that Paul has writings, plural, that are scripture. Um, So beyond that, written in Greek, in church history, by about the middle of the 4th, 5th century, um, the, the Roman Catholic Church under Constantine makes the Latin Vulgate, Vulgate coming from vulgar, vulgar meaning common, um, not having a negative overtone at that time. And now, nowadays when people say vulgar, they pretty much exclusively mean it for common course. Um, but v- vulgar simply meaning common. Uh, the Vulgate is Latin's the common language at the time. And so from the 4th, 5th century, the, the church has used pretty exclusively the Latin Vulgate written by Jerome all the way until the 16th century. Um, and so in the 16th century, before, before Luther, um, you have the rise, what's called the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, and humanism um, gets a boost. And p- p- the big cry of the Renaissance and the ref- and is back to the sources, back to the sources. And so there was a big movement among scholars just gl- in Europe in general to go back to the original sources. And so people are learning Greek and people are reading Aristotle and people are reading Plato and they're, they're going back to the sources and especially the humanists. And so as they're doing this, the question arises, why on earth are we using a Latin translation? Why not go back to the original Greek sources? So Erasmus of Rotterdam gets papal permission hesitantly to put together a Greek New Testament. So he goes around, collects um, some, mm, collects about 23 families of texts, um, not a big sample, and he puts together his New Testament. So let me pause. The way, the way New Testament textual criticism works is you gather all the data, you, you figure out how many texts you have, and then you compare them. And the thought is this. If, um, let me use the example. If every one of you were to try to write word for word what I said for the next five or ten minutes, it's conceivable that not one of you would have a perfect transcription. But it is also conceivable that if we had all of your copies, we could recreate a perfect transcription. Because where, where um, 
where Marina aired, made a mistake, wouldn't necessarily be where um, Colleen made a mistake, wouldn't necessarily be where Owen made a mistake. And so if you've got 100 copies of what I said and 97 say thing A and three others say different things, the overwhelming majority likelihood is that the 97 are right. The otherwise, you have to believe 97 people all in the same place made the same mistake. Very incredible. So the Rasmus is, compa- so you compare the texts and you come up with your readings. And even in the compilation of Erasmus's um, Greek New Testament, which becomes known as the Textus Receptus, the received text, the text that the Pope approved, um, there was debate, and the Pope insisted on a couple passages being put in, most notably uh, what's called the Trinity verse in 1 John 5. In 1 John 5, Erasmus couldn't find a single Greek text that had a, had a part of a verse that the Latin Vulgate had, and the Pope basically twisted his arm and made him include it. Um, and so the King James, the New King James, they're all based off of Erasmus's text, which is often called the majority text. Um, and that's the text, the New Testament Greek t- tradition, the King James, the RSV, the New King James come down from. So that's based off of a small group of texts um, co- collected in the 16th century, in the 1500s. Um, now in the last 500 years, we've found a lot more texts. And we're going from a family of maybe 23 to something like 2,500. I mean, it's an order of magnitude greater. But more significantly, we've found texts that are far, 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 far older. Um, we've got a fragment of John's Gospel, Papyri 52, that is dated at about 120 to 100 to 120 AD. <coughs> Considering that John wrote in the 90s, that's ridiculously close. Um, that even though it's a postage-sized fragment, we know how big the original book was, and so it lets you know something called the Gospel of John is written back then. In, in other words, it destroys the argument that the Gospels were written in the 4th century in Alexandria because we've got a fragment of John from about 120, 100, 120 AD. And so with, our, with, with a much greater variety of texts and much older texts, re-checking out the Greek New Testament um, started working on and what you started coming out with what are called the critical texts so i've got two different greek new testaments here this is the one um united bible society's fifth edition this is uh this is one put out by cambridge a guy um what's his name um who's the dude the british guy the video peter williams peter williams is the head of the editor of this they're virtually identical so so You've got three different Greek New Testaments. You've got the, uh, at least that I'm aware of. I'm sure there's more. Um, there's the United Bible Societies, headed up by Metzger. You've got the Nestle Lalonde, which is, I think is in the 28th edition. And then you've got this one just came out a couple of years ago by Tyndale House. And as they're combining and, and checking the readings on about 25,000 texts, um, the precision and the accuracy of recreating the original is stunning. These are virtually identical. Different committees looking at 25,000 texts, trying to figure out readings and resolutions. What's also helpful is at least Metzger, I don't know if Tyndale does, they came out with a separate book justifying, explaining some of the readings they take. 
And so when they, they, they'll mark at the bottom when there's a variety of witnesses, when there's differing options, and then they've got a whole book explaining how they did their math, justifying the readings they took. They give uh, certainty to readings. So that's, that's the backdrop. So the reason why all of your English Bibles until 50 years ago had, without any quotation marks, the story of the adulterous woman is because the Latin Vulgate had the story of the adulterous woman. And because Erasmus included it. And there was no alteration. Everyone used that Greek text to make their English Bible, so there's no question. Only since then, as a bunch of Greek texts, in fact, I'll pause, one of the unintended consequences or the good consequences of the, of the invasion of Islam into the Holy Land is a bunch of really old texts fled out of there, out of monasteries, as that, that we didn't know about. In the last 100, 150 years, we have found a wealth of Greek manuscripts because of fleeing from some of the Muslim incursion in the Holy Land area. Um, um, Sinaiticus, Aleph, um, yeah, we've got a bunch of really, really old codices that we wouldn't have otherwise had that were in monasteries and in churches in that region. Um, So that's kind of the backdrop. So I'll say one more thing. So you've only got two options when you're dealing with figuring out what the text is. The Roman Catholic option gives certainty, no doubt. Um, they, they claim authoritative magisterial authority to tell you what the text is, which is exactly what the Pope did in insisting that Erasmus include a fragment of a verse that he couldn't find any foundation for in 1 John 5. And the positive side of that is no uncertainty. You don't have troubling passages like this morning. You know what your Bible is. If they say that means it's unchanging, that's not true. Because we've seen with, say, like Vatican II, the Council of Vatican II in the 1950s, is when, people don't get this, it wasn't until the 1950s that the Roman Catholic Church at Vatican II formally and officially announced the Apocrypha as Scripture. No, no, that's not true. Sorry, I'm confusing. Trent, 16th century. Vatican II is when when they permitted the English to be read. I'm sorry, I misspoke. I misspoke. 16th century Counter-Reformation Council of Trent is when they, they uh, recognized the Apocrypha as Scripture, largely so they could rebut Luther, because you simply can't argue for purgatory or almsgiving and penance from the Scripture, and they recognized that, so they needed things like Tobit to try to argue that. Um, and so it wasn't, so even with a magisterial church that'll tell you what the text is, they can change their mind. It doesn't, it doesn't remove the problem ultimately. Now, the counter then is we have to do the work ourselves, um, and there is some level of uncertainty. Anyone reading their Bible this morning saw a level of uncertainty in virtually every English translation about the story of the adulterous woman, and I would say at the end of the day, we have to trust God to give us his word, and we have it as accurate as he chooses to give it to us. I think it's an incredibly high degree of accuracy of our ability to recreate the text, um, most of the debatable texts are small things like titles. There's really only two or three significant ones. There's this one, the story of the adulterous woman. There's the long ending of Mark. If you go to Mark, your, your Bibles will likely say at the end some, and then some of them won't even contain it. It's so dubious, but they'll reference that there are various long endings of Mark. Those are the two big ones, the adulterous woman and that. The rest of them largely come down to titles, ands, thes. And even there, the accuracy of recreating it is incredibly high. Okay, that is a 10-minute, I think I've kept 10 minutes, maybe more, background. Just that, that's the field we're dealing with in the background of textual criticism, trying to figure out what the text is. 
questions, and I'm sure there'll be plenty. Um, how do I remember all that? I prepped for it. I knew it was coming up. And no, and and honestly, my years we had we had an open door at Simpson Campus for about five years, and in that time there, the number one issue. We were, I was arguing, I was trying to teach, trying to, trying to convince people on, was inerrancy and authority. Because, of course, Simpson, um, Simpson's religious department, at least at the time, five, ten years ago, would not recognize the Bible as authoritative, the Bible as inerrant, the Bible as accurate. And so I, that was the issue I needed to study and argue on. Um, and so I spent five years focusing on issues of canon, issues of um, the text, because there's some smart, evil people over there. Um, I mean, in other words, they're smart, and they make arguments undermining faith and undermining the text. Um, I, they may not, I'm not trying to speak ill of everybody. I've, ta- I've had personal conversations, gone out to lunch with one or two of the religion professors, and that's what I'm speaking from, is um, that, that background. So between five years or so of intensive focus, knowing this was coming up and prepping for this, and having gone through some classes in seminary, that combination is how I'm able to speak with whatever clarity I have right now. Scott, or who's ne- who's next? Those, oh, Lucas. Colossians three, verse ten. For all who rely on books of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed by everyone who does not able by all things, written on the book of the law, and do them. Ecclesians wrote it from the letters of Paul. Mm. Indeed. Scott. So let's say this belongs in another time in Jesus' life. Where would you put that time? He's teaching in the temple. It could be any one of the three times every year of his life that he went, well, it would be after his baptism. So in the three to four years of his public ministry, he'd go to Jerusalem at least three times a year. We see him I, most. Re, the closest stylistic connection would be Luke. If I had to guess, um, if if it is scripture, who wrote it? My guess would be Luke. It's the closest stylistically to Luke, and Luke has him, of course, for an entire week before the Passion, teaching in the temple, having about eleven confrontations with the Pharisees and the scribes. This would fit perfectly in there, something like that. I mean, that's at the end of the day, we have encounters of Jesus just like this. They come up to trap him. He masterfully undoes them. They go away silenced with their hands over their mouth. They do it with the, the Sadducees coming up with, there's a, there's a woman who married seven brothers, and he silences them. They do it with, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, show me the coin. And he, So this is of a kind with that. So, so like I said, if, if at the end of the day, think, I think this is scripture. I definitely think this happened. Um, and if you're, we have another example of Jesus, do, great. I, that's why I spent the time saying whatever this is saying, it's not Jesus soft on the law or Jesus saying what we really shouldn't do is judge anyone or point any fingers because after all, we're all sinners. That, even on its own terms, this text doesn't teach. But yeah, if I had to guess, I'd say it would fit most neatly into the final week in Luke, but that's just a guess. That's kind of what I was assuming too. Okay. Amory? Do we know why they chose to put it in this part of John? No. 
No, we don't. Um, so, and even, even here, like the overwhelming, when it does occur, the overwhelming majority are here, but we still have, and this is unusual, this doesn't normally happen, we do have text where it shows up in other places. It, it seems to evidence, and when you're, when you're trying to, when we had a class on textual criticism, if there are a bunch of rules, canons, principles applied, but at the end of the day, you're trying to explain the data you have in front of you. Let, let me give you, let me back out and give you a simpler example. So um, we've got different text families and traditions, and say in a given verse, the uh, one text family says, Lord Jesus, just in a verse, and we something the Lord Jesus. And then we've got another tradition or family of texts um, where instead of in that verse saying Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus. And then we find a third thread that says Lord Christ Jesus or Christ Jesus Lord or something. It's far more likely, and this is getting back to trying to reconstruct what happened, that some copyists had both the family that says Lord and the family that says Christ. They didn't want to choose, so they put them together. That's a far more likely explanation than that the original reading was Lord Christ Jesus, and one group decided they want to get rid of Christ, and one group decided they want to get rid of Lord, and that's how you get the true traditions. So as you're trying to do the math of sorting it out, really what you're trying to do is explain what you got in front of you. Because of its changing locations in a minority of texts, it seems to indicate a number of the copyists recognize this breaks the flow. They're trying to find a home for it. They're trying to find a place to set it down is probably the most likely explanation. So I don't, I don't know more than that, but there seems to be evidence that the copyists recognize it's a hard, like trying to make a jigsaw puzzle piece fit somewhere. That, that's what it looks like to me at least. Chris. Something neat about uh, its placement there, and I don't think this is necessarily an argument that it needs to be yeah, there yeah. or not, but uh, so recently was that discussion of the temple guard talking about nobody's spoken <laughs> like this man oh, yeah. as a reason for not right. bringing him in. This is such a good example of what that would have looked like to be there and feel right. that way. Oh, no. In fact, thematically, I get why they'd fit it in thematically. Back in eight. Read, read what uh, Jesus says. So if this is an example of their corrupt judging, you've got 722, don't judge with righteous, judge with righteous judgment, not by appearance. And what does he lay into them on in 8, um, in 8, 14? Because they say, you're bearing witness about yourself. And then he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, which now we're dealing with the issue of witnesses and evidence. Um, my witness is true. My testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I am going. By the way, that links perfectly back with, I'm not actually from Galilee. Ultimately, um, you judge according to the flesh and this whole charge to them is you guys are corrupt judges. So yeah, I can see why someone put an example of them being corrupt judges right in here. It thematically fits it. I just think breaks the flow of the text pretty clearly, but to answer your question as well, why might they put it here? The concept of judging righteously, false witnesses, Jesus bearing witness to himself, Jesus telling you, you guys judge unrighteously. Oh, thematically, it's perfect. I mean, it, it, not perfect. Thematically, it fits well. Just reading it, it's clunky as its introduction and, and its in ending. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Other questions, thoughts on this? Oh, Jay Copper. Two things. I'll try and be quick. Yeah. Uh, the first one is, um, and I think you touched on this some, I appreciated that, is that uh, what's perhaps most dangerous about this passage of Scripture is when it's the only verse of Scripture <laughs> right. that anyone knows. Right. Well, when, listen, judge not lest you be judged. Yeah. Right? 
that, that's sin similar. Basically, it's like, well, none of you are without sin, therefore nobody can judge anything. Let's all just love each other. I think that was the phrase you used. Right. And that's really dangerous, and I appreciate you unpacking it in that way. But even, as you pointed out, even just this passage on its own will not stand right. up to that scrutiny. Jesus is not right. saying that judging sin is wrong. He's right. not softening anything. Well, and if he was saying that, they'd have all the evidence they need right there to condemn him. And yes. they don't, and they don't, and that's probably, <clears throat> on its own terms, that's probably the best indication it doesn't mean that. If Jesus was in fact saying, look guys, um, didn't you really get that if you really read the law, it's deeper, truer meaning, is that we're all unrighteous, and really no one's in a position to point any fingers, and no one's in a position to judge anyone, and really, unless you're sinless, why don't you just not do that? If Jesus is teaching that, they could absolutely accuse him of, of rejecting Moses because he absolutely would be rejecting Moses. Absolutely. Um, we read Psalm 2 this morning. Turn, turn to Psalm 2. Um, Psalm 2. Messianic Psalm. Speaking of the future reign of the Lord Jesus. And the reason why I say that emphatically is the reference to a rod of iron in verse 9 is quoted three times to Jesus, attributed to Jesus in the events of the book of Revelation. So, as I don't believe the events of the book of Revelation have happened yet, I think the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 is yet future looking. Um, and in Psalm 2, we read of this Davidic king. So, I mean, just read the whole thing. It's, it's an amazing psalm. Why did, we sang it this morning. I, I liked that, uh, the new text to an old melody. Why do the nations rage the people's plot? In, no, it's catchy. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. I've, I've, by the way, I've heard people reference that to missions, but what does he do with them? You will break them with a rod of iron. This is about a, global, this is about a kingdom. He will be a global king. Um, and in that rule, he will dash his foes to pieces. He will have no problem throwing a stone. Um, as the messianic king of the earth and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And on that basis, the rulers who are so eager to rebel against him are warned in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is about Jesus at his second coming. Go to, go to Revelation 19. Let me show what I mean. If you want to cling to, if, if you've been taught and you're like, maybe Jesus is doing that sort of, who are we to judge? Let's not, let's not deal with that. When he comes again, that's not, that's not the, the pose he takes. <laughs> and Psalm 2 makes it clear. But we'll just read in Revelation um, 19, which will cite Psalm 2, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges 
and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he should strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the quoting of Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's Isaiah 63. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And somebody asked me pointedly last week, would Jesus have supported the death penalty had this been carried out properly? Um, I'm not certain how the implications of God giving Israel into the stewardship of Rome would apply. Certainly, Jesus who shows up to claim his kingdom would. So I'll grant there's some question of if God's given Israel into the judgment of Rome and Rome says you can't kill people, how much of the Mosaic law is actually applying because they're not really a sovereign country. There could be some question about that, but that what the law said is good and right and that when it's time for him to judge his enemies, he will. Oh, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. In the kingdom, he'll be metering out the death penalty. No question in my mind about that. Um, So... Yeah, it's as nice and soft and cuddly as it is that Jesus is just saying, can't we all just not judge each other, can't we? Now, he talks about judging hypocritically with a log in your eye, no doubt. But the New Testament commands us to deal with sin. It's not optional. How easy would it just be? Like, you know what? I know so-and-so is having an affair, but who am I? And And we're not free to do that. We have instructions to the contrary, so... So yeah, that's my biggest point. Is whatever's going on in this text, it's not some new ethic of just we're all sinners, so let's just coexist. Um, Thank Jake, you. Yeah. yeah, no, that was great. And the yeah. second part is just we sometimes forget this because Jesus routinely and easily makes them look like half wits. But like the <laughs> scribes, these are very smart people, yes. and this is a very yes. intelligent trap. Yeah. It is. It just yeah. it shows Jesus's wisdom that he so easily takes it apart in just a sentence or two. But this is a um, trying to catch someone between God's law and the law of the government is a very, very smart trap. And it's a trap that's still used today, to this day. Either soften the law of your God or perhaps run afoul of the civil government. This this still happens. And this is a tough trap. And I just... I think we, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that the bar to be a scribe in ancient Israel was high. Yeah. This is a very intelligent and, you know, an intelligent way to try and catch someone up in this. And I think that it just shows how Jesus was so easily able to, ca- almost casually, not casually, but almost in a... No, it is, it is casual. Yeah. He completely is right unflustered word. by it. No, they come up to I me. Mean, I just love picturing the drama, like watching the video with the sound off big bustling group of people there's this woman she's in their midst they teacher jesus just (laughs) and what he's writing we're not even told like everyone's like what is it must be important if it was important we'd be told so my conclusion is the contrast is how little of a problem this is for jesus how little of a uh uh-oh what am i going to do 
Um, dude, there's a lot of speculation about what he wrote. Um, some people think the first time he writes the first table of the law, then the second table of the law. Some people think he's writing about false witnesses in Exodus. The Jeremiah one I liked, they'd be written in the ground because they forsake God's law. But the, the, the author doesn't tell us, which then only highlights the insignificance. You know, um, you can't even argue he's doing something really important. He's, he's doodling in the ground. So, yeah, I just, I just wanted to give yeah. the due and proper yeah. to, yeah. you know, the people that this is still a trap that sometimes yeah. catches up believers yeah. and... Yeah. And just, it's amazing to see how Jesus handled it. Thank you. No, well, it's very similar to the trap they pose him. Hold on a sec. Um, Caesar. Can someone find me where they, uh, he, the coin whose image and likeness is on this coin. Let me look that up. Um, image. Um, I think that's Luke. Hold on. It's really similar to that one. Nope. Yes, that one. Luke 20. Yeah, go to Luke 20, 25. You see, the, the form of the, of the trap is identical to the form in Luke 20, 25. Thank you, Zeb. See, I didn't remember that, Colleen. Luke 20, see. But Zeb's got my back. Okay. Um, 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable about them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up for up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. This gets back to where Scott, this is in that week that he's just ruling the temple. I mean, in Luke's telling, it's fantastic. He shows up, it clears the temple, and then he just holds court in the temple all week long. And just makes clowns of everyone who tries to come and deal with him. And he silences them. And he's just ruling his father's house. He takes possession of it. And then he just like sets up camp. And there's like six or seven different encounters where he just, just silences them. And they, these people get sent away silenced. And the people are just putting their hands over their mouths. It's, just, it's awesome. This would fit perfectly in with that. Um, if I had to guess. You know. But so here's the trap. They said, teacher... <laughs> 21, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Get him either to, to say that he's in favor of honoring um, and giving homage to Caesar or get him to run afoul of Rome and deny paying taxes. And again, then a masterful sidestep. It's the same dilemma. Um, either prove him to be a pro Caesar and, and then he's not loyal to the Jewish nation or he's, they can go say that this guy says don't pay taxes, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and description does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So the, 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 this text of the adulterous woman is of a kind with this. It's another example of a big plot, big trick. He says one thing, and they're just, they're done. They're done. There's no big debate. There's no like, yeah, what about? It's just, you know. Or then the Sadducees come up with the, with the, the fictitious story of the woman who married seven brothers. Go to that one. Matthew, this is, this is another one of my favorite ones. Um, Matthew 20-something. Head over to the 20s in Matthew. I'll tell you which one just as soon as I get there. Um, 22. 
So Matthew 22, um, right after the similar, the coin thing in Matthew's account, verse 23, the same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven. Whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And so there, the key, thankfully, Matthew tells us they don't believe in the resurrection, which I would point to trust the author to tell you what you need to know to understand the passage. So Matthew helpfully says they don't believe in the resurrection. So what they're doing here is they're trying to use a form of reductum ad certio. Um, which you may not know by name, but you absolutely know in practice. You take your, you 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 try to disprove someone else by adopting their position and showing that held consistently, it would yield ridiculous results. Oh yeah, well if what you're saying is true, then, and so what they're in effect saying is there can't be a resurrection, Jesus, because if there were a resurrection, you would have scenarios where a woman would have seven husbands. These people probably wouldn't have a problem with a guy having seven wives, but this woman having seven husbands is just verboten. That's cra- That's insanity. And so, so they, they clearly, and that's the form of the argument, right? It's just imagine how crazy that would be. Um, and that's a valid form of argument. Paul uses a similar form of argument, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, if Christ is not raised, if the dead are not raised, and even Christ is not raised, and if the Christ is not raised, then you're dead in your sins, and the those who've died are died in their sins, and we have all men of the most be pitied, and we are liars because we've said that Christ is raised. And Paul's using reductum ad certio. There are people in Corinth saying there is no resurrection. And Paul's like, well, let me show you the implications of that. I think you're not going to like them. So they're bringing this form of argument to him. And again, Jesus masterfully sidesteps them. Well, not sidesteps. Here he just rebukes them. Um, and I'm highlighting this one because I want to get back to proving the point. Jesus, no one has a higher view of Scripture than Jesus. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God, said seeker-sensitive Jesus. Um, no, and, and part of why they get slapped in the face like that is because these are teachers, man. They should know better. Um, these aren't common folk. These are people who've made themselves the teachers. These are the Sadducees. They rule the temple. And they're, they're, they <laughs> clearly don't understand what they've read. So he rebukes them. And then he deals with first answering their bogus question. There is no woman who married seven brothers. I mean, they just use this as an example. And first, he deals with that, verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Marriage is for this age only. It pictures the relationship of Christ and the church. It does not endure into the resurrection. So she's married to none of them. No problem. But watch this. Then in verse 31 to 33. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, what Jesus' argument here is a little more subtle. Let's work backwards. Whatever Jesus just said silenced the Sadducees and amazed the crowd. So what Jesus said, and again, it's just, one sentence, two sentences. When Jesus said, have you not read what was said to you by God and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Whatever, whatever he's saying there, everyone else recognizes his game set match. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished. 
But when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees. So both the crowd and the Sadducees have nothing to say. Everyone in attendance recognizes Jesus just won the argument. The Sadducees are silenced. They have no, yeah, but. So what's the nature of his argument? And it's a syllogism. Premise A, premise B, conclusion. Syllogism, these are just different ways of reasoning. Um, So a syllogism would be something like um, uh, um, Don promised he'd give me $5. Premise A. Premise B, Don keeps his word. Premise B, conclusion. Don will give me $5, right? So Jesus is arguing that way. Premise one. It is written, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Premise B, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now there's an implied conclusion, there is a resurrection. How does this work? What matters is what he's quoting. Does Does anyone's Bible tell them what he's quoting in verse 32, I'm the God of Abraham? Anybody? It's the burning bush, Exodus 3. This is what the Lord, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus would be my almost certain guess, says to Moses out of the bush. And the whole thing hangs upon the chronology because the events of Exodus 3 happen how many, 400 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, roughly? So 400 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God speaks to Moses from the burning bush saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The reason why I say this proves Jesus' view of Scripture is then Jesus' entire argument hinges upon the fact that Exodus 3 says, I am not, I was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's, that's the way the argument works. Because he says, look, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, God says, I am Abraham's God, not I was Abraham's God. So if God is Abraham's God, then somewhere, someplace, Abraham is. That's the argument. Because the Sadducees just believe when you die, it's dead. You go to the dust, there's no more life. So Jesus' entire argument proving the resurrection is the tense of the verb to be in Exodus 3. And note, everyone around him recognizes the validity of that reasoning. The crowd doesn't say, well, Jesus, that's a little overly literal, don't you think? And the Sadducees don't say, well, it's just the idea and the intentions behind it that matter. This is what people today would say. Everybody around him has a similar view of scripture. They recognize this form of reasoning is valid. Their mouths are silenced. They go home. The crowd is astonished. The Pharisees get word, hey, did you hear Jesus silence the Sadducees? And Jesus' entire argument, this is stunning, talking about Jesus having a high view of scripture, is guys, Exodus 3 says, I am not, I was the God of Abraham. God's not the God of dead people. God's the God of people who are. So if God says he is Abraham's God, Abraham is, Jacob is. That is a remarkably high view of scripture. It, it, it's the basis for why I'll argue from grammar as I'm teaching through a passage. No, it's, it's, a, it's a valid question. You know, when, when we're making a big point of a word or two in a passage, it, are you making mountains on a molehills? Is there any warrant? Is there any, what's, what's the reason why we pay attention to grammar, conjunctions, um, word order? Well, because Jesus does. Um, This is one of the arguments I'd make at Simpson. I'd say, look, I'm just trying to read my Bible like Jesus reads his Bible. Um, Well, we don't know how Jesus reads his Bible. I I got a clue right here. (laughs) He takes it pretty seriously. Um, And so I'd I'd try to, what, what conclusions can we draw from how Jesus took the Old Testament? Well, here, Jesus will argue the resurrection entirely 
from the tense of the verb to be in Exodus 3. Remarkable. Okay, questions on anything from that? Um, Or anything else that we've covered this morning? Okay, let me move on to John 7. Back to John 7. Do, do you guys, does it, does it make sense? Any questions that make sense that when I say Jesus is referencing the witness, my link to that is first to throw the stone. The law of Moses, remember, they're the ones who came, Moses commanded. They're the ones who brought Moses up. And so when Jesus references the first to throw, we saw in Moses, Moses is clear, the first to throw is the witness. So let him who's without sin be the first to throw. Is, I, I'm arguing, Jesus was saying, let the witness the witness without sin, the witness who's not corrupt, the witness who's not um, involved. In fact, one of the speculations I avoided in the message is that, again, when we think through what scenario could a woman be caught in the very act, you, you supposedly have a witness who witnessed the very act of adultery. Some people have suggested that the witness is the man, which is why he's not willing to come forward and be a witness. <laughs> At best, he has to say, he has to account for why they only grabbed the woman. And at worst, the other partner in this adulterous affair is the witness. Now, that's pure speculation, but it's, I wouldn't put it past the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, and scribes to be that corrupt. Um, it's entirely possible, but we don't know. What we do know is the witness is unwilling to come forward. And on that basis, Jesus says, well, then I don't condemn you either. Um, so we can speculate about why the witness won't come forward. Certainly, things don't seem to be in order. Um, you're talking about what Moses commanded. Moses also commanded to get both of them. And there's been no explanation as to why you only have one. So at the very least, someone's got some explaining to do. And conceivably, we could come up with a scenario where they only got the woman. Um, maybe they already killed the guy. Or he had a heart attack. Or maybe he fought them off and fled, or who knows. But... You, You'd have to explain it. You'd have to justify it. You'd have to account for it. And no one is prepared to do that. So, okay, Jeremy in the back. I've been trying in my head for a while to figure out the right way to ask this question. And I'm not sure I've gotten there yet, so I think I'm just going to talk through it. <clears throat> Excellent. The plain understanding in the English language of what Jesus said let the first, let he who is without sin throw the, be the first to condemn, Yeah, would be understood to us as you're sinful, you don't condemn the other person. Sure. I am 100% in agreement with you that that's not what this is saying. Sure. How do we determine scripturally, I mean, I want to read my Bible literally yeah. Yeah. as best I can. Yeah. How do I determine, this is a case that, oh, he's, he's not literally saying this, yeah. whereas in other cases where other people would say, well, that's not what liter- literally what he means, and I yeah. say, well, yeah, it is, because that's what he's saying. Right, right. How, how, well, do we, how do we come to grips with that exactly? To- totally, totally great question. Totally fair question. In other words, we just saw Jesus camping out on the tense of a verb, and here I'm saying the prima facie, most direct reading is not the one to take part of it is we tend to think of sin and guilt only in cosmic terms 
mostly because we study Paul. Paul speaks, Paul's the one who most commonly uses God's law court as a metaphor for salvation and a plaintiff and a judge and a verdict. His whole language of justification and, is, and imputation is legal and accounting. So there, there's, look, I'm backing up. There's two primary ways the Bible, uh, metaphors the Bible uses to speak of salvation. The law court metaphor, which goes as far back at least as Zechariah 3. Um, and the idolatry, unfaithful spouse imagery. That's, that's the, the covenant-breaking picture of Hosea and of, the, of Ezekiel, right? Those are the two primary metaphors. So we've got to deal with something like Noah was a righteous man. Which is, things like that are pretty common expressions in the Old Testament. And if you take righteous to mean absolutely before God, you're going to run into problems. As you read your Bible, you find out righteous is a, it can commonly just mean he's a faithful man, he's obedient, he's good. So I would argue here, whatever sinless means without sin, Jesus is clearly linking in with throwing the first stone and Moses tells you who throws the first stone is the witness. So okay, now we're, give me witness first. Forget, we'll deal with what does without sin mean. Um, the, wit- the witness needs to throw the first stone. Where's the witness? Then when you go to Deuteronomy 19, there's an examination to see if the witness is a corrupt witness or a true witness. And I don't think it's a stretch to say without sin, he's not a corrupt, he's, he's a righteous witness. Relatively as being a witness, he's a righteous witness. He's a sinless witness. He's a witness without corruption or sin as far as that issue goes. That, that's how I'd argue it. But, I'll, I'll, but I'm going back even further with saying I wouldn't hang a ton of weight theologically on anything in this passage because I'm not convinced this passage is scripture. It might be scripture. I certainly don't think it's part of John's gospel. So if you do think it's scripture, I wouldn't teach a novel doctrine like being against the death penalty or no one judge anyone. And that's also where we bring in the harmony of scripture. So like, say, we, say we float the idea, is Jesus saying only sinless people can judge? Let's check and see if that agrees with the rest of the New Testament. Maybe, I mean, no, fair enough. Maybe there's a, one of the shifts from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is law and judgment to grace. But then you're going to get to Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take along two or three that everything may be testified to by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Oh, that's a repetition of the Deuteronomy standard. Exactly. Um, of justice and I could show you six or eight other passages that clearly tell us the deal with sin in the New Testament look go to Second Thessalonians 3 um, so no it's a fair question there are times we've got to say that and scripture's not going to contradict scripture so we compare so fair enough if someone wants to say well maybe that is what he's saying then you say okay if that's the case how do we square that with Second Thessalonians or Romans 16 we're 1 Corinthians 5. Let, let, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5, even better. 1 Corinthians 5. The language is even clearer. 2 Thessalonians 3 would work, but 1 Corinthians 5. Um, I'll, I'll look at that, Lucas, when we're done. We've got just a few minutes. Let me get this. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So in 1 Corinthians 5, he first deals with the case study of a man that's reported to Paul who's been having an ongoing sexually explicit affair with his stepmother. And Paul is aghast that they're, actually they start being, they're tolerant. They're praising themselves at how non-judgmental they are. That's their boast. We are an affirming church and we 
just celebrate. I mean, verse five, first chapter one, verse chapter five, verse one. It is reported, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from you. So the church is proud of this somehow. I mean, I mean, we could guess how it works, but they're non-judgmental. They all have sins, so none of them cast stones. Whatever, here's your case study. Should we do that? And Paul rebukes them. Keep going, right? So now let me jump down after he deals with the guy to verse nine. I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Okay, so then I'd say, how do you square your reading of John 7 with that? You know, and, and I suppose you could say, well, the scripture contradicts itself. Okay, I, I don't know. But you're going to have to square that with the rest of it. I mean, that, that's again, most cults and most false teaching come from somebody grabbing one verse refusing to reconcile with anything else and just building a castle on one verse and i say okay fair enough perhaps that's what's being taught in john 7 can we see if how that squares with some other plain text like, so i would just say right here paul says frankly you are to judge right and judgment with consequences you exclude this person you don't even eat with them right so like it's it's a judgment that has consequences on the other side of it and we're commanded to do it Matthew 18 similar thing and I could show you about seven or eight other passages that are similar and I'd say it, it can't be the case because it contradicts those um, you ask a great question this is why whenever we're testing anytime you're trying to interpret a passage a good test is does this square with the rest of scripture and part of the test is okay I do this all the time when I'm studying a passage what I think this says, how would it square with these other passages that deal with the same topic? Um, and I want the passage to stand on its own two feet internally. What I don't want to do, this is the lazy way of doing it. I know it looks like it's saying this, but because of this other passages, it can't be saying this. That's fair. Tell me what it does mean and do it from the text. That's why I tried to argue from John 7, this narrative. I think if you, if you go slowly enough through it, it's clear he's not saying that. I'd use the rest of the New Testament as a check to guard against the licentious, approving, I'm just fine with adultery Jesus. Um, and that can't be, that can't be it. Whatever it is, let's go back and do our math some more. But that's, that's um, the, the test is confirming whatever you think one passage says with the, rest of the New, with the rest of the Bible, the rest of the New Testament. We are at time. I'll stick around for a few more minutes. God bless, Godspeed. Good day. Oh, we had a question, Scott? Who? Where? Oh. Oh, sorry. Go, Alex. I Alex just, has, okay. I was just going to say, like, people that would make that argument, they leave off the very last part of that section. Like, the very last thing that said is, go, and from now on, sin no more. Right. Which makes it clear Jesus isn't saying, I don't condemn you, like, what you've done isn't wrong. He wants you to sin no more. I don't condemn you. In the courtroom, they just fabricated. We want to put her to death. How to vote you, Jesus? I don't condemn her the standard of evidence hasn't been met. So, no.
but go and sin no more. Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.